Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back on conversations with some sports owners. Mark Cuban, the governor of the Dallas Mavericks and Shark Tank star. Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United. And Mark Lazary, the Milwaukee Bucks co-owner. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio Vault. Here's Brian's interview with Mark Cuban from October 2020. My guest is Mark Cuban. He is the governor of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. He's also a shark on the hit show Shark Tank. You can follow Mark on Twitter at MCuban. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, I want to start with this. When I think of you, and I think when most people think of you, they think of your deep connection to Mavericks players, whether it was what you did for Dirk last year at the end of the season when he retired and you brought in Barkley and Pippen and uh, Larry Bird and people like that. But more recently, personally tracking down Delonte West and, and making sure he gets the help and the care that he needs. You really go above and beyond for your players and coaches. Where does that come from? I mean, it's just being nice. I mean, you know, somebody works for me. I, I try to be supportive and, you know, we talk about, you know, not just a Maverick while you're here, but a Maverick for life. And, you know, it, he lit, it, when I saw the pictures of him and everything, it was close to my house. And so I just went driving and looking for him. And during that time, called trying to hunt down his mom and was just able to connect up with him and get him some help. But you realize, like, a lot of people in your position would have just assigned someone in your organization to do that. You doing that personally is really special. Yeah, I don't know if it's really special. I mean, honestly, if it was across town, maybe I would have assigned it to somebody else. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it literally was just up the street and, you know, two miles away. And, and so I just thought it was the right thing to do. And once he called me, um, you know, it was a matter of timing. I had to go right there and then. Otherwise, it wasn't going to work. And, and so there, was, there wasn't any time to think of alternatives. It was just go do it. So now, I mean, think of the difference you're going to make in his life going forward, his family's life. That's got to make you feel well, pretty I hope good. So, I mean, look, with with um, alcoholism and drug abuse and mental health issues, it's never just as simple as let's just get him to rehab and hope it works from there. Um, it's got to be something that he commits to, and we're able to get a whole team around him and and support him and get his family around him, which I know they will be, and support him and. You know, it's mental health is just something that we don't fully appreciate the difficulties for, for the people that suffer from issues. And, you know, it's just a very, very difficult set of circumstances. And I hope Delonte can fight his way through it. Well, I tip my hat to you for doing all you can to help him. Dirk played all 21 of his seasons for the Mavericks. Luka Doncic has really taken the torch. He looks poised to be a superstar for many years to come. Mark, the thing that I think a lot of people might not realize is you traded for both Dirk and Luca, it's one thing to identify talent. It's another thing to go all in on that talent. And you've done that. What's kind of the core characteristic that you look for people when you go all in on them? Well, you're telling me it took me 22 years, right? <laughs> Actually, Dirk was traded for before I bought the Mavs. But yeah, it's look, drafting and trading is always a risk. We've had trades that have worked um, and worked out very well and trades that have not worked out. Nobody trades you somebody, you know, thinking they're making a mistake. Um, they have their reasons as well. And so you always have got to be cognizant of, you know, why, why something is happening, what the risk factors are, and what the upside is, upside is. And then you just have to try to go for it. And 
you know, that's the nature of this business. It's, it's so much more luck than people truly appreciate. And we really were fortunate with Luca that he's the real deal. No, that's great. Um, and, and again, I think it takes guts to go all in on someone because you could have easily just stayed where you were in the draft, but you obviously no, identified no, I him. Losing. I hate losing. <laughs> and, you know, and when you get a chance to do something special and really, you know, you always want to find the players who are misvalued, right? Where someone doesn't appreciate their talent for some reason. And we really felt Luca fit into that. You've shown a lot of leadership since March, really this year. I mean, you've always shown leadership, but I've been watching you on Twitter. You're offering solutions to small businesses about how they can stay afloat. You're personally investing millions in underestimated founders. We have a lot of CEOs and senior leaders who listen to this show. What should leaders be doing right now? Communicating, listening, being authentic, being honest, um, because it's difficult for everybody. And Nobody wants to hear spin. No one wants to be misled. They want to know whoever, you know, they have to look up to that they truly can believe in. And, you know, it's like we see from, from our politicians. You know, when it comes to the virus, we don't know who to trust. One day this is the person that they suggest we listen to. Then they change this, and then they change this website or that website. You know, so we don't know who to trust. <clears throat> and it's really a, a necessity right now for, for CEOs and, and leaders to make it so that their stakeholders, their employees, their shareholders, whoever, can truly believe them and trust them because that's what's in short supply right now. And I'll, I'll add to that, you don't have to, to be the leader to be a leader. You know, it, there, there are going to be circumstances where you may run a department or you may, you know, be someone on the phone, but, you know, because you develop a rapport with people around you that they trust you and believe in you and listen to you. Whoever finds himself in that position, that be a leader, you know, and it always starts with authenticity, honesty, communications, and trust. Speaking of being leaders, I really feel like the NBA has been leaders in social justice issues, and you've turned your arena into a voting location. What do you see the responsibility of the Mavericks being regarding social justice issues and, and making sure people are able to vote? You know, I wouldn't necessarily call it social justice issues as opposed to just trying to encourage citizens to be, you know, good American citizens and vote. Um, it's something that benefits the country regardless of who we vote for. Um, it's something that we need to do more of. Not enough people vote. Um, I think 30, 25, 30% of the population, eligible population didn't vote in 2016. That, that needs to change, and we really want to encourage people um, and support them. And so, you know, we have a facility that's centrally located, has access to public transportation, is big enough to support however many polling, um, polling booths that we need. And so we decided it was the right thing to do, and not just to do that, but to promote people and, and try to help them be able to get out and vote during the early voting period and, and on Election Day. I want to head out on some uh, NBA topics with you. We're in the middle of the NBA Finals. I've seen you talk about this on, on Twitter a lot. How should we be calculating sports media consumption? Because it's not just about TV viewership anymore, is it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why we calculate it at all. <laughs> you know, the, re the reason ratings exist is for advertisers to make decisions on where to advertise. Now, if you're, if you're an NBA fan or not an NBA fan, I don't know why you would care. I mean, the thing about it is, are you enjoying the games or are you not? You know, and if we want to have a discussion about the presentation, that that's great. If we want to have a discussion about, you know, different features of a broadcast, that's great, too. But to me, I mean, it's just 
more partisanship and that's really what it's become. Um, you know, I, I never really cared what the, you know, when I watch a show on television or when I stream, streaming is a better example, right? Do you use Netflix? I do. Do you use Amazon Prime? I don't. Okay. Or and any other streaming? Yeah, stream? Apple. and. Okay. So for all the streaming content that you've looked at, have you ever looked at the viewership numbers? Do you even know the viewership numbers? Nope. Do you care? Nope. There you go. Right. So, all, you know, when people decide to talk about the NBA ratings for better or worse or NHL or NFL, NFL, you know, it's sport. It's a different kind of sport where they're trying to make a typically a political point. And, you know, to me, that's it's fun for me sometimes to argue on Twitter because you get people who who try to troll you and don't really know what they're talking about. So it can be fun. That's a competitive side of me. Um, but it's really a useless event <laughs> when you think about it. It serves absolutely no purpose. The upcoming NBA season, I know we're not done with this one quite yet, but Adam Silver has been quoted as saying it's probably going to start sometime in 2021 and not before then. When do you think is the right time to start the NBA season, and what do you need to see, Mark, in order to say, okay, we're ready to go? I think we need to have a vaccine that people are confident in and people aren't afraid to go outside of their houses. You know, and when I say afraid, it doesn't mean that you won't go out. It means, you know, you're not going to take grandma and grandpa to a game because you're concerned about their health. When, when we get past that, I think that's the right time. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm hopeful and, and so also somewhat confident that we will get a vaccine before the end of the year. Um, and so I think, you know, February seems like a good time to shoot for. Um, but it's really going to take a vaccine and people feeling confident that they can go out and have fun again. And when they do have that confidence, I think we're going to see a snapback for location-based entertainment and live events like we've never seen before. Because if you think about it, you know, watching sports on TV is one thing, but going to an event and just the experience of screaming or yelling at a game or in a concert, you know, singing along, that energy you feel when you walk into the arena for a game, that, those are things you can't replicate at home. So I'm not worried about how things will be when we go back to the arenas, but I, you know, in terms of will fans want to go, but you know, we're going to need to see them be confident. What's the new normal going to look like? Cause you're someone who's a visionary. You can reimagine things. It's going to be different. There's going to be a new normal. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of things that, you know, we, that change us. You know, a lot of it is going to be how, how we are as consumers. We, we shop a lot more online right now. We trust it. We buy our groceries online. We buy meal kits or whatever, you know, we're into. I mean, I know myself personally, like I'm on this kick of eating, um, watermelon and honeydew melon chunks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds good. Yeah. You know, for whatever reason, I've, I've gotten into them and I just order them pretty much every other day from Amazon fresh or um, whole foods on Amazon. And all my habits have changed in terms of grocery shopping. And now when I travel, you know, I'll buy things instead of buying room service or going to a local restaurant, I'll buy things, you know, have them delivered to my room. And so we're a lot of people's habits are going to change. And I think, you know, we're going to have to be a much more digitally oriented um, commerce environment. Um, and that's going to change retail. Much as Walmart came into small towns and changed the nature of retail there, you're going to see digital change the nature of business and retail. And I think on one hand, it's going to be devastating to restaurants and theaters and, um, and, and just retailers in general. Um, 
But on the other hand, you're going to see new ways of doing commerce and new exciting things you can do online that we otherwise might not have done. And, you know, hopefully you'll end up being creative destruction where we things are better off. Kind of like when we went from albums to CDs to downloads to streaming, you know, people lost their jobs, unfortunately, along the way, but we created a lot more jobs along the way as well. And hopefully the same thing will happen here as we go forward. And the other thing I'll add to that, I think you'll see a whole lot more ambient voice meaning things like Amazon Alexa and Google Home, where people are trying to reduce their touch points. And places you go, they'll just react to a voice, not even necessarily your personalized voice. And that'll make it easier to do things and get around places. And people will feel safer. And it'll also be more effective and more efficient. Interesting. I was very close with late commissioner David Stern. Uh, I know you guys had your run-ins, but what lessons did he teach you? I mean, you bought the Mavericks in 2000, and he was the commissioner. And is there anything he kind of oh, taught yeah, you along the way? David. I mean, we sparred all the time. And he, the funny thing is, he used to say, Cuban, I made you. Because <laughs> every time that I got fined, it would be major media story in the sports world. Right. And, and he would laugh about it. And he knew exactly what I was doing, that I knew exactly what I was doing with it. Um, but, you know, I had a great relationship with David. And I miss him a lot. He, he was truly a great man. And, yeah, you know, in terms of what he taught me, you know, he taught me bigger picture. Like I was not a fan of going to China initially. Um, and you know, to me, China always had uh, possible, you know, China had a lot of potential and it always will, meaning it was very difficult to really turn it into a real business. And he had a, a much bigger vision of going globally that he was right and I was wrong. And, you know, so I learned quite a bit about the global nature of business because, you know, the businesses I'd had, maybe were in business in Japan, but we never did business with China. And, and so just so many, or China or India or Africa for that matter. And, and so he really opened my eyes to the global nature of business. You're inside those board of governors meetings, and I imagine they're being done virtually now. I know Adam too, and I know he's very different than David. How has he been during this year? Because boy, has he really had to put on his thinking cap. Yeah, I mean, from the day he took over, there's been one thing after another. But Adam is great. He's a great listener. He's very forward-thinking and visionary. He knows how to incorporate different ideas um, from such a variety of governors, right? We're all so different in so many ways. But he, you know, he'll listen to everybody and, and, and make you feel listened to as well. And then, you know, make decisions. And so far, it's worked out really, really well. I mean, you know, and he's also good at execution of things. I mean, the fact that we were able to make the bubble work is just so insane when you think about yeah. it. I mean, you know, not to have a single positive and to have guys talking about, you know, the positive nature of the experience um, and to have basketball, you know, the games be incredible. That's such a, a testament to his ability. Um, what a great accomplishment. And, you know, and not only was it big for the NBA, but it set example for not just sports, but, but for other businesses to say, look, there's a way to do this if you're careful and if you put safety first and you don't cut corners and, you know, you make, you know, masking a requirement. Um, you know, just think about that. I mean, in the NBA, in a bubble where everybody's tested, we still required masks everywhere, every time, and nobody tested positive. Just think if we were able to extrapolate that to the red, to our entire country, everybody did the exact same way. So we know there's a way to open up the economy. We know there's a way to make it work. We just have to get people to, to really buy in, like we got our players and staff um, and the other participants down there to buy in. Amen. All right. I want to talk to you about Shark Tank. Season 12 sure. debuts on October 16th. Uh-huh. 
How is filming ABC. on ABC? How has filming been different this year during COVID? I've seen some of the dis- the teasers, and you're seated, you know, six feet apart. Yep. But how is it different? Crazy different. Um, first, our bubble was a lot stricter than the NBA's bubble. Really? Literally. Oh my goodness! Literally, there was tape on the floor, tape on the walls. We would go from our room to a specified elevator bank that only we had access to down to the the bottom floor we were in a big hotel then we had to follow the tape um to here to our our dressing room where we changed then we went followed the tape to makeup where the makeup artist had basically hazmat suits on (laughs) (laughs) wow and then we followed the tape to um the set we shot shark tank we broke you know we went from 9 a.m basically with an hour break for lunch to excuse me 7 p.m straight we had to go straight back to our rooms, know nothing else, and then start over the next day. And so that in and of itself meant when we got to the set, we were caged animals. We were ready to, to really dig in and have fun and, and do deals, and that's exactly what happened. And also realized the entrepreneurs had to quarantine as well. It wasn't like the entrepreneurs just showed up. They had to be there for eight days quarantine, taking tests like we did a test every third day, I think. They also had to take tests and do the same thing. And so by the time, you know, to go through that and then to come and present to us, the pressure was on. You knew they really wanted to be there. And so the companies were better because, you know, the commitment that was required, the deals were bigger and better because, you know, they really wanted deals. That's why they were there. The entrepreneurs were great. I mean, the sharks were were battling it out because we, like I said, we were caged up in our room, <laughs> not able to see sunlight, you know, let alone other people. It was funny because there was this one, there was this set of slats where our elevator bank was, and you could see on the other side where there were some people. And I remember just walking by there every day going, oh, I just wish I could talk to real people. (laughs) (laughs) But the season's going to be crazy good. And I did more deals, I'm probably not supposed to say this, I did more deals this season than I ever have in a season. That's fantastic. So does it take a week, two weeks, three weeks? How long does it take to shoot an entire season? So two blocks of 10 days. No, 12 days I think was the first one and nine days was the second one. So it took us 21 days of shooting. Wow. And then, you know, when this started, I ran out and bought a product called Phone Soap, which I yep. saw on Shark Tank. Lori yep. is the shark. Yeah, and I wanted deal. that deal. I don't lose many deals, but I lose, I lost that one to Lori. Um, cause, and you know, it, they've done great, man. They're just crushing it right now. So are there, you know, without giving away details, are there some companies that come on in season 12 who have kind of pivoted during this pandemic to cater their products to help people during this new normal? All of them. Oh, that's great. All of them, right? Because nobody can just continue doing business as is right? Um, without having to adapt some. And so everybody had to, to really, maybe not 180 degree pivot, but definitely adjust and change. And it really created some crazy, crazy businesses that we saw. Um, and I, I wish I could tell you about them, but let me, let's just say I made one, two, three million dollar plus deals that where I invested a million dollars plus in a company and probably another five that are $500,000 plus. I mean, literally I invested more in more companies than I ever have because those businesses were so committed and they were so agile, so resilient and so forward thinking. Um, it was exciting. It really, really was. I, I, 
it was insane. I, I just wish I could tell you more about stuff. <laughs> I can tell you're like chopping at the bit to give out yep. some details, but it will, that makes us want to watch it even more. What you know, on October 16th on ABC? Exactly. October 16th. <laughs> Trust me. Well, no one will know. No one will uh, not know when that date is and when it's going to debut. What's the mindset that entrepreneurs need to have in this new normal, in your opinion? Agility, um, authenticity, the ability to communicate, um, the ability to be resilient, and the ability to be honest with themselves and their employees because things are different. No employee, no customer, no prospect is going to listen to or accept spin. Oh, it's no big deal. Nobody is going to believe that. And particularly your employees, I mean, you know, everybody's terrified. You know, the CEO, the entrepreneurs are terrified. Employees are terrified because there's so much uncertainty and we don't know who to trust and we don't know what's right and what's wrong and when this ends. And so, you know, you've got to be brutally honest. And then you've got to also um, be self-aware individually and as a business that things are changing. You know, we talked about the transition to more digital and online sales. You know, if you're pure retail, that's going to be a challenge. People are going to be afraid to just walk in for some period of time. And, you know, malls, there's not going to be as much mall traffic. There's not going to be as much shopping center traffic. There's going to be so many differences in how we live our lives that maybe aren't, aren't, aren't night and day. But, you know, if there's a 25% change in traffic where you do your business, you know, that's going to have an impact. If you're in an office building where the primary tenant decides to do more work from home and not to immediately come back, how does that affect your coffee shop or how does that affect your um, shoeshine stand? How does that affect your office product store that's there? So many things you have to be brutally honest about with yourself that it's not easy. It's hard. Going back to the show, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I've always wanted to ask you this. So you have no problem calling out the companies who you think are just on the show for the shark tank, shark tank effect, right? You know, they're just on there for exposure. How does a company decide whether to keep grinding on their own versus taking on outside investors? You always want to go without investors as long as you can, as long as you can, because the only way that you're going to get you know, the, the more of a company you own, the more upside you have. I would not be a billionaire if we had, if it weren't for me investing the money to start AudioNet and Broadcast.com. Um, if I would have taken investors right off the bat when there was, you know, there was only a concept and not a real business, then I would have had to get up to give up too much of the company. And people also have to realize that when you raise money, it's not an accomplishment; it's an obligation. If Brian's investing his money in a company. You're going to want to return, right? And you, you're going to want to know what's going on, and you want to, you're going to want to hold that entrepreneur accountable. And that's the same across the board. And so when you just own it yourself or with friends and family money, let's say, then you have complete control, and that's a huge benefit to, to what you're doing. And particularly if things – if you run into challenges, you know, if things aren't going great – your, your investors are going to know what, want to know what's going on. Like I right. get my weekly reports and, you know, tell me what, you know, why things aren't the way you said they were going to be or what you're going to do because of all the changes. And, you know, you have to be willing and able to explain that to your investors, whereas no investors, you don't have to do that. So hang on to that equity unless you're getting a shark to help you, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there's going to be times like if your business grows and you need cash to amplify and accelerate your growth, that's fine. Right. If it's going profitably, because there's two things for growth, there's non-profitable growth and there's profitable growth. Too often, particularly in Silicon Valley, 
you know, I've seen deals where people have invested $500 million to do $100 million in sales. They're basically giving away the product at a loss, hoping to own the market. Um, and that's difficult. That, it, you know, it can work sometimes, but it doesn't work most of the time. And so you've got to make the, the very important decision of which approach you're going to make. And I think particularly now with the pandemic going on, VCs and investors aren't willing just to fund unprofitable growth. So, you know, if you have a company that's growing successfully and profitably and you want to accelerate it, then it can be okay to take in outside capital because you have a track record and you're not going to have to give away near as much of a company as if, if you were not profitable. Just a couple more questions. Uh, I've seen Charles Barkley, Maria Sharapova, Alex Rodriguez, they join you on Shark Tank. Is that like, you know, when you're going to play basketball with one of your players and they see you coming on to play one-on-one and their eyes get real big? Are your eyes getting big when you see one of these Absolutely. athletes? Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's definitely the way I look at it, and and you know, I I always call him the rookie. I'm like, okay, rook, I'm gonna now it's my turn. <laughs> so I always mess with them. That's great. Well, it looks like they have fun on there, and and they've oh, yeah, done some they, deals. No, we make sure they have fun for sure. One of your favorite sayings I've heard you say this a few times: "How you do anything is how you do everything." Right. What does that mean? Um, it means, you know, you got to pay attention to the details. It, it, that's something I, I didn't learn until I got older. I mean, I wish I had known when I was younger and that I harp on with my kids. You know, it's like if you're going to learn something, learn it. If you're going to start a project, finish it. If you're going to – if you see something on the floor – Pick it up and throw it away. You know, how you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habits of paying attention to detail for the big things. And that, that's pretty much the, the gist of it. I love it. All right, last question. I know you're a dad like me. I've got an almost 16-year-old daughter. I know you have two daughters and a son, right? Yeah, two daughters. Son's 11 and my daughters are 14 and 17. This is such a weird time to parent because, you know, kids are learning distance wise and and they're not seeing their friends. They're not playing sports. What's your advice to parents out there who are trying to navigate this time with their kids? Oh, you know, every kid's different. Um, I, I just, you know, I tried to I tried to, to be, um, my wife and I tried to be considerate of uh, the circumstances, particularly with my older daughter, who's just turned 17 and trying to be social and trying to hang with our friends and really make it clear that the underwriting or the overriding issue is safety, right? You, you've got, you can't compromise on safety. You've right. got to wear your mask everywhere. You've got to be careful, you know, because the, the number one place where infections are passed aren't outside, but they're in the home. And so if you bring it back, we're the ones getting sick or your grandparents may get sick or your aunts and uncles or cousins may get sick. And so, you know, that's really the number one message is you've got to be careful when it comes to safety and you've got to always wear your mask, even if your friends don't think it's cool. Great advice. Mark Cuban, governor of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. He's also a shark on Shark Tank. It debuts October 16th on ABC. Follow him on Twitter at M Cuban. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger here. In addition to hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm also the co-founder of the consulting firm Everything is on the Record. Since 2007, we've been working with CEOs, corporate spokespeople, 
pro sports team owners, athletic directors, elite athletes, and coaches to help them navigate the tricky media and social media landscape. My business partner is Rick Buecher of Fox Sports. As part of a new partnership with e-learning platform Open Sesame, we are now offering many of our teachings via on-demand courses available on video. Courses include presenting your best self in a video meeting. Your personal brand is connected to your employer's brand. Pause before you post, text, and email. And scrubbing your social media. To take any of our insightful video courses on demand, visit opensesame.com and type in the words, everything is on the record in the search. That's opensesame.com. To learn more about how we can provide a customized training session for your organization, visit everythingisontherecord.com. That's everythingisontherecord.com. Now, here's Brian's interview with Arthur Blank from November 2020. My guest is Arthur Blank. He is the owner of the NFL's Atlanta Falcons, Major League Soccer's Atlanta United, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. He's the co-founder of Home Depot and the author of the new book, Good Company, which is available at bookstores everywhere and on amazon.com. Arthur, I've got to tell you, thanks for joining us. Uh, This book that you've written, Good Company and Shoe Dog from Phil Knight are now my two favorite business books. I love the stories that you tell in the book. What made you want to write a book? Well, I, you know, I, it's really, uh, that's a really good question, Brian. I think that, um, you know, my experience at, at the Home Depot for 23 years, um, it was pretty clear that myself and my partner, Bernie Marcus, we, we, we built a company, um, Yes, big stores, low prices, great services, great service levels, products, et cetera, et cetera. But the most important thing that we knew that we had uh, that was unique, that we carried out to a quarter of a million associates before I left the company, uh, was this culture. Um, and so the culture was based basically on six, six core values and all have to do with human relationship, putting people first and listen and respond and include everybody and innovate on a continuous basis, lead by example, and giving back to others. So um, what was most interesting is that after I left, and here I bought the Atlanta Falcons and you know, later opened the franchise for Atlanta United, we bought our guest ranches in Montana, Mountain Sky and, and West Creek, and, uh, and we operate the PGA Tour Superstores, which is the largest golf retailer in America today. So all of these same core values, regardless of the industry, regardless of the uh, geography or the topography, um, they all worked 100% in uh, connecting um, good, you know, good economics, good profitability, because I do believe in capitalism. On the other hand, they connected equally with doing the right things for the right reasons uh, and living with the consequences of those things and giving back to the community, being connected to our associates, and most importantly, or as importantly, being connected to the people we're serving, our guests, our fans, or our customers. So you know, these core values have nothing to do with uh, how much money you're making uh, or, you know, certain things you'd measure, et cetera. But basically suggesting that, you know, good behavior drives good results and good behavior drives an awareness of um, a purpose that goes beyond just, uh, just, just making a bottom line, if you will. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, you talk in the beginning of the book about your parents and your family. Yes. Are they the ones who helped instill these values in you? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I think so in, in large part. My, I lost my father was when I was only 14 years old. He was, uh, he was 
44. So I think, although I didn't realize at the time and probably didn't realize it really for many years, but I think somewhere in me that instilled a, uh, a wiring uh, that said, you know, have a sense of urgency about, you know, life, have a sense of urgency about making choices, have a sense of urgency about making a difference uh, because there's no assurance you're gonna be here forever. Uh, I didn't think that, but I think that inside of me spiritually, that was a component of my, of my makeup from that point forward. I think probably even more of it was my mother who was always, we came from a very middle-class background. We lived in, you know, in a, in a one bedroom apartment. Uh, when I bought my first home, I was 31 years old and I paid $31,000 for the house, for the entire house. That wasn't like a down payment. That was the entire wow. house. I remember telling my wife at the time, listen, I'll keep current on the payments, but we'll never be able to pay this mortgage off. So it shows you how times have changed. But the point is that, uh, my mother was always a person of principle, always a person who got involved in community, always involved in any issues, uh, whether it be like we're trying to do now, get people to go out and vote or, you know, to make sure that you know, there was equality and, 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 and equity and diversity and inclusion and everything we were connected to. So we didn't have a lot of money then, but my mother had a lot of, of, um, of thoughts and commitments to those kinds of values. So I think the coupling my mom and dad definitely made a big difference. And then over the years, obviously, it's gotten fine-tuned. Whether it's lowering prices at Mercedes-Benz Stadium for food and drink or keeping prices at cost at Home Depot after a hurricane, there are a lot of people who would say, hey, I'm going for the money here. Yeah. You haven't done that. It sounds easy to do, right? Have values and, and run your business, yeah. but not as many people do it. How have you done it? Well, I, I think it's because I think that from a fundamental standpoint, we understood that, you know, these values um, would, would drive us to making the right decisions for the people that we're serving. Uh, as I said earlier, guests, fans, customers, depending on the, on the business. But if you go back, for instance, to the days of HD, when uh, when he had the hurricane go through South Florida, <clears throat> all of our competitors had raised their prices already. All of them had, and we were protecting close to 3,600 miles of of, um, of of shoreline at that point, down through Florida, over through the coast area, et cetera. And um, and we, uh, you know, our our attitude was that you know our customers had got us to this point in terms of success, uh, and. Uh, we got to find ways to say thank you to them, ways to show appreciation to them. And so why at the most desperate times in their lives, in many cases, both physically and emotionally, losing homes, losing businesses, uh, people getting ill, people being hospitalized, et cetera, would we want to raise prices? So what we did was just, you know, we didn't, we didn't promote it. We didn't make a big deal about it. We just we said, look, we're here for you. Even though many of our stores were closed, we operated because they got hit by the hurricane. Our HD associates, they opened up temporary stores on the outside, and the parking lots, et cetera, and they never closed. And they kept selling product at the same prices that we always sold it at. And, um, and you know, and, and they did whatever, whatever they could do to take care of those customers that helped us build our business. And it was interesting, about two weeks after all of that happened, it was a front page story in the Wall Street Journal that we didn't know was even coming. But the writer had found out, like you're suggesting now, Brian, the writer had found out about the story and said, you know, this is front page story above the crease. We want to tell in the Wall Street Journal. And and uh, for us, it was just keeping true to our values. 
of appreciating these customers that got us to where we were. Uh, the other thing which we did at the same time was that, you know, we made sure that we doubled down, tripled down all of our suppliers and made sure that they uh, changed their distribution during that month period of time. So they forced product into these areas to our stores to make sure not only the prices were kept low, but the products were still available. Uh, and on the food and beverage, uh, it was a similar kind of thinking, Brian. I mean, it just, uh, uh, when we uh, when we built the uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you know, one of the opportunities we had, which we didn't have in the Georgia Dome, <clears throat> was to uh, control the, the food and beverage in terms of the sourcing, in terms of the quality, the quantity, the pricing. So at one of our meetings, I said, you know, we got to find a way to say thank you to our fans who are coming in here and paying us a lot of money, PSLs and season ticket prices, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, Second to winning all the time, uh, you know they want to they want to have a great food and beverage experience. So you know I'm I'm willing to take a chance, take a bet uh, that if we lower the prices, uh, that they'll respond by buying more, by actually not planning their meals around going to the event or the stadium, and not feeling like they're captive in the building. So when our associates asked me, some of them asked me, well, what does lowering mean? I said, how about in half? So I people look at me, there was stone silence, like I lost my mind. So I said, well, that's exactly the reaction that I hope that our fans uh, would have, is that they, would, they wouldn't believe it. And when we announced it, actually, the media, they were the ones who first didn't believe it. They said, oh, that's, well, that's incredible. Thank you for doing it for the first three games. I said, no, we're going to do it for the whole year. They said, oh, well, you know, you, you, maybe the first year, but you're not doing it in the second year. I said, we're going to do it forever. Uh, and they said, well, I'm sure you won't do it for the special events national championships, Super Bowls, college bowls, you know, concerts, et cetera. I said, no, regardless of the event, including the Super Bowl, these prices will be maintained at this level. And they've been. And so today we're ranked number one in the NFL and in Major League Soccer for food and beverage. We're also ranked number one in terms of security and ranked number one in terms of uh, the welcome home atmosphere that we create within the stadium. So you know, we can't always control, you know, whether we're going to win or lose a game or a match, depending on the sport or whatever. Um, but we can control the environment that we are asking our fans and our guests to show up in and how they're treated when they're there. And we do control that. Arthur, you have managed a number of people throughout your career, whether they're high profile or lower profile. And one of the chapters of your book that really struck me was chapter two, where you shared the story of how you were informed by the board that you were being ousted from the company that you co-founded. And I immediately, my mind went to this October when you had to make a change with your football operations with head coach Dan Quinn and GM Thomas Dimitrov. And I thought to myself, I wonder how the experience with the board at Home Depot helped you when you have to inform people, you know what, we're going to make a change. But that's not an easy thing for people. It's being done a lot this year. How, how would you recommend that gets done? What's the best way to do that? I, I would say, number one, my experience at HD um, really ended up being kind of a political situation. There was a couple of board members uh, who felt very strongly about one candidate that was available when Jack Welch uh, had decided to retire and he had picked uh, one of his three senior people to run GE at that time, um, and a really good guy, 
who's now retired. Um, but the guy he didn't pick was Bob Nardelli. One of the guys he didn't pick was Bob Nardelli. And so uh, this individual was on the board of GE and felt that if we didn't get Nardelli right now, we, uh, you know, we would lose him and it would be like the diamond that we would have lost. Um, so I was, I was actually chairing the committee that was seeking out a new CEO. Um, that, that committee pretty much was run over by, you know, by uh, this individual and the rest of the board followed him. Uh, so it really had not as much to do with me. It had to do with getting this guy in place. Five years later, they fired him. Um, and the next two CEOs are people from within the organization, Frank Blake, Craig Muneer, and now Ted Decker, the latter two I hired, actually. Um, but anyway, getting off of that experience, which was, which was really pretty negative for me in my life, I would say when you're letting you know, somebody go, and I had dinner last night with Coach Quinn as an example. I mean, I, you know, I love Dan. I mean, he's one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Um, a really fine football coach and a, just an outstanding human being. He was with us for six years. Thomas Dimitrov was with us for 12 years. Thomas was this was the year that we drafted Matt Ryan in 2008. So, at, but at some point, you know, I've always um, said this publicly as well as privately is that, you know, I mean, I know I own technically the Atlanta Falcons, you know, financially, legally and all that stuff. However, I view myself as a steward for the fans. And I think when you uh, are tone deaf to the fans uh, is when you, as an owner or in any position of management, you really get in trouble. When you're tone deaf to the people that you're serving, in this case, the fans uh, supporting supporting the Atlanta Falcon franchise. And you know, we had gone since the Super Bowl in 2016, um, in the last two and a half years, we our winning percentage was 45%. And that was not what, what I had signed up for is not really what Dan had signed up for and is not what Thomas had committed to as well. So when I had to make the change, it was very painful, very difficult. Uh, but I knew that I was doing it for the right reasons. And the people that were supporting the franchise who were giving us not only their money, but their time, their energy, their passion, et cetera, along with it. I mean, they needed to know that, you know, that I had a responsibility too. It wasn't to draw plays. It wasn't to, you know, to, to, pick out players and things of that nature. But it meant that when that kind of change was necessary to happen, that I would have the uh, the courage to act in their behalf and do the right thing. And so I felt that was my job. And uh, I've had lunch with Thomas a couple hours, last night with Dan a couple hours. I mean, we're close friends. I, you know, I love him personally. Uh, we've agreed to maintain that relationship, which we will maintain. Uh, and at some point, you know, I said to Dan last night, you know, you had six years here. It was not a failure. Yes, it ended up shorter than you and I both would have liked. But, you know, we went to the Super Bowl. We were in the playoff three times. Uh, the year after the Super Bowl, we had a very competitive year. And most people felt after the way we lost the Super Bowl that we would be really off base that following year. We weren't. We played competitively. But for the last two and a half years, that has not been the case. So, I felt it was the right thing to represent our franchise and represent our fans. So it's painful and it becomes really easy to do. You need to do something else for a living. Yeah, so. that's, that's a really good way to put it. Uh, in chapter four of your book, good company, you tell the story about right after you bought the Falcons, you were on the team plane and you went yeah. back to the back of the plane and, and you started talking with the players and 
you said that was better than any board meeting because you were hearing from the players directly. How yeah. often do you talk to your players now? And there's so much going on in this world, Arthur, from COVID to Black Lives Matter to player safety. How often are you listening to your players and what are they telling you these days? Well, I think, on, Brian, on, on the issues you just, have, you just mentioned, I, I try to talk to our players as much as makes sense. Um, and talk to them directly because I'm not talking really to them about, you know, why are we losing or why are we winning? Or are you happy with the way you're playing? Or you don't like this coach or this coach. I, mean, I don't, I don't cross that line. I don't get close to that line. But when it comes to the issues that you just described, I, I do tap into the wisdom of the players and the players, you know, they, um, they still remember where they came from. They go back to those communities, often their parents, their grandparents, their siblings are living in those communities that still struggle with, equality and diversity and, 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 uh, and inclusion in a broad sense. Um, they struggle with the issue of, you know, uh, law enforcement accountability. Uh, so they, they, you know, they're much aware of these things and, and, uh, and they want to see, they want to see movement. They want to see progress is a term that we use now that I use now is moving from protest to progress. And I think the NFL and the players are doing that. Um, it's not, you know, it's not where it needs to be, but with progress being made and that progress should be recognized and should be celebrated. At the same time, the reality of where the country is today and how much more work there is to be done needs to be recognized, too. And we need to give the players an opportunity to express themselves because that's that's important to hear from them. And that's our responsibility to work alongside them to uh, to make progress in these areas. And uh, we do that in a variety of ways. And I would say most clubs in the NFL do it. Um, and I would definitely say the commissioner does it, the league does it as well. Uh, so I, I think, um, and the players appreciate that. You know, I've always said that if I ever had to treat players uh, or any of our associates as quote commodities, um, you know, I, I, would, I would not own a team. I always want to know them I want to know their kids. I want to know their aspirations post-football. I know what they are during football, but post-football, if I can help them with their philanthropy, help them uh, figure out what they want to do for the rest of their lives when they finish playing, those are things that I care about. And those are things when the players understand that and feel that, you know, they understand they have a deeper commitment to the organization, the franchise because of that, because they, they, they all want to be considered as, you know, as human beings first. And players, they understand their job. They, got, they get paid a lot of money to do it. They understand that. But they also want to be uh, thought of as, you know, I, I have aspirations for myself, for my family, for society, uh, for the betterment of the world. I mean, I have a purpose, too, that goes beyond just playing football. And so the more we pay attention to those things, I think the deeper the bond becomes between us and our players. What a great example you're setting for them, Arthur. Uh, you're... Family Foundation is doing amazing things. And, you know, if I'm someone who works for you or plays for you, I see what you're doing out there to make the world a, a better place. And it's very inspiring. And, and, you know, I followed you for a long time, but your book brings out some of the specific mm -hmm. things that you've done over the course of your life. But what a legacy you're leaving. Well, thank you, Brian. You're kind. The other thing which we do in our philanthropy area, we have associate giving funds in each of our businesses. Um, so, and that'll total this probably coming year, close to 14, $15 million. So those are funds that are, uh, they're not run by our officers in any one of our businesses, but each of the businesses, uh, have, have an associate led groups 
that determine a component of our total philanthropy for a year. So, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll find things, whether it be in soccer or in football or in, you know, whatever it may be out, out in Montana and our ranches, they find local things that they know are important to the people that are living in those communities and they'll make those decisions. They'll make the evaluations, they make the site visits, uh, they'll, make, they'll make the grants. They're all within certain guidelines that we overall give them to make sure they don't go off the track someplace and they don't. Uh, and then we go back and look at, you know, how, how well are those grants performing? So they feel not only are they proud of what the foundation's doing, but they're particularly proud of what they're personally involved in and personally doing. And that's all run by hourly associates. We don't let any of our officer group, they're not engaged in that activity. They have other ways, but they're engaged. It's wonderful. Uh, I want to ask you about being on the NFL's Workplace Diversity Committee. You've been on that committee since 2002. A lot of progress, as you've said, but still work to be done, as I've seen you say in other interviews. What's the work that still needs to be done? Well, you know, Brian, I think I would say this is probably, I would start by saying probably the most important thing is that the intention, the real intention, in my opinion, of uh, the NFL and and its owners, I would say, and is is to absolutely have um, a diverse uh, diverse le- leadership group in our clubs that represent, you know, uh, a much closer demographic to what our players are. Basically, seventy percent of our players are are uh, people of color, men of color, um, and we don't have close to that in a variety of positions. In some areas we do, but in most areas we don't. So you have to, one, acknowledge that truth, and that's where it starts from. And then you have to acknowledge the fact that, is that acceptable? The answer is it's not acceptable to anybody personally or as an organization or as a league. So we have to do a better job at developing a deeper pipeline of candidates so that we're ready to make choices on coaches and general managers and team presidents or officers and marketing folks, merchandising, whoever it may be, is that we're looking at a real diverse set of candidates. Because you can look at it set of diverse candidates and you know the only ones that are really qualified look like either you or i brian and that's not acceptable so you have to have a diverse slate that represents you know competitive candidates you know really competitive candidates that are black and brown and white and you know and asian or whatever the case may be um and i think the league is working very very hard to doing that and it's building rules in place to encourage teams to do that so for instance this year uh, one of the rules that was adopted, if I was, if I was, uh, let's assume for a second, Brian, that you happen to be uh, a person of color. So if you were working for us in a, as a, an assistant general manager position or somewhere in personnel and you got taken away and promoted as a general manager, we would get a pick. We would get an additional compensatory pick, draft pick, for having trained you, supported you, and brought you to that level where but, you, you know, and then you would go on to wherever you would go to whatever club it may be and go on in there from your career. So I think the NFL is doing a number of things um, and requirements of interviews and things of that nature and sp- spreading it. Initially, it was just head coaches and general managers. Now it's basically all frontline associates, all uh, front office associates. It includes coordinators. It includes position coaches. There's a lot of changes relative to when you can interview these people that were much stricter in the past based on where they were seating in the playoff runs and Super Bowl. And you'd have to wait till the very end to be able to interview somebody. I remember we interviewed Dan Quinn and we interviewed him once. 
I never could talk to Dan again for, it was like five weeks, I think, you know, and during that period of time, you know, we interviewed a bunch of other candidates and it got a little scary because I, you know, I couldn't talk to the guy. I loved him. I really wanted to hire him, but I couldn't because he's still coaching for Seattle at that time. And um, so it was, you know, it was, you know, so those rules have changed to encourage that. And I think uh, the other thing, which I do think the league is doing now is, um, you know, we have scorecards and, sc- and scorekeeping on almost e- everything else. So I think that the league is definitely keeping uh, a, a, a factual awareness of what, of, of what the body counts are and, and, uh, and they should. And uh, so I think there's a sense of, we all know it's the right thing to do. We have the mechanisms in place now, develop the pipelines deeper and stronger, make sure we have a diverse set of candidates for every job that we're looking at that are real candidates, not make-believe candidates, and then, uh, and then make your selection from there. I think that'll change the numbers in the future. Just a few minutes left before I let you go. Uh, I want to talk about your Major League Soccer Club, the Atlanta United. So many people thought, wow, Major League Soccer in Atlanta? I don't know if that's going to work. And not only has it worked, you've been one of the leaders in the league, drawing over 70,000 fans routinely. Uh, You won the MLS Cup in 2018. It's been a huge hit there in Atlanta, Arthur. Yeah, it has been. And I think that, you know, I had the advantage of moving here in 1978 and opened up our first Home Depot stores in 79. So I was here for you know, almost 40, 42 years at that, at that time, or 40 years at that time. And, um, and so I had a lot of confidence in Atlanta. I remember when I moved here, the greater Atlanta area, the SMSA was probably a little less than a million people. And now it's close to 7 million. So, and I felt there was no natural barriers to keep Atlanta from growing. So it would continue to grow. I also had seen a tremendous growth in terms of diversity. Atlanta's got a very large Hispanic population and growing. Uh, and so, and I knew that my son had played soccer, um, club soccer, and um, my my ex-wife, two of her children had played club soccer, and I was close to all of them. I still am. Um, and, um, and so I'd seen them play club soccer and seen the turnout and the quality of the soccer being played in Atlanta. So, I mean, I, I had um, good reason to feel like this would be a success in this city. And then we hired a great guy, Darren Eels, who was our president CEO. He uh, um, is from England, had played overseas, uh, played in the United States, still holds the scoring records uh, at Brown University and, and other schools he played at. Um, and he had this global view of soccer. We hired him early, two and a half years early before the first match was started. So he had plenty of time to study the Atlanta market, understand club soccer here understand how MLS was functioning at that time, where were the opportunities, how the salary cap system worked, et cetera. And, um, and he found a great coach and brought in a great group of players along with a tech, technical director who had been uh, one of the top defenders in the history of the United States, Carlos Bacanegra, who was captain of the U.S. national team on two occasions that competed in the World Cup. So we went to the very top. And then we, you know, we we spent time at a lot of pubs all around Atlanta, you know, recruiting soccer fans, which is where they where they were. And um, and again, we gave them the experience they wanted. We they, we never made them felt feel like they were playing soccer in a football stadium. We uh, didn't show the, the lines for the NFL games were gone. All the all the sight lines, this, the cl- seats would pull back. 
their visibility. Everything felt like it was a soccer design stadium. In fact, two years ago in Spain, uh, we were awarded as the best soccer complex in the world at that time. So, you know, it was being thoughtful and, and, and understanding the market and then uh, not doing anything to put any limits on it. Allow it to go to its very top. And it has obviously beautifully. Didn't have a good year this last year, but you know, we'll, uh, we'll work on that and certainly turn around this coming year. Last question for you as the person who co-founded Home Depot, I've always wanted to ask you this. Yes. I go to Home Depot and I just wander around because there's so many incredible items in the store. Thank you. What's your go-to item at Home Depot? Like, is there something that you've got at your house that you're just like, I have used this more than anything else? Yeah, what, I, what I used to use more than anything is um, I, I, in college, one of the ways I paid for uh, help pay for my college expenses was my, my, I had my own business doing, doing landscaping. So everything on the outside, I love doing, you know, all the cutting and the trimming and the cut, lawn mowing and, and, and planting and growing things. I mean, I always enjoy that. I have a really big yard here on our Atlanta home and I have a big yard in our Hilton at home as well. And uh, so I don't do as much of that. I don't do really any of it anymore, but uh, it's, um, I still enjoy being outdoors and enjoy being the, out, the outside and enjoying a beautiful yard that we have. Well, Arthur, congratulations on your book, Good Company. You can get it at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. I highly recommend it. Just a great read. Lots of great stories. Okay. Love reading about your life and, and so many great, valuable lessons in the book. You know, I'll just say this to you. Uh, you are a credit to humanity for everything that you've done for this world. A lot of people, you know, get into this business and, uh, you know, they, they make a lot of money, but you've done it the right way. So I congratulate you on that, Arthur. You're, you're very kind to say that, Brian. I've been surrounded and blessed with, with wonderful people and uh, uh, associates and, and, uh, and people we've served. And it's a beautiful business in that way because every, all of our businesses serve somebody, fans, guests, customers, and our associates. They understand that and they, um, and they take great pride in that. So uh, thank you for your time today and for your listeners. I appreciate it. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. As some of you may know, in addition to hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm also the founder of the Sports PR Summit. We've been building something very special there since when we launched in 2013. Noteworthy people such as Adam Silver, David Stern, Jamel Hill, Grant Hill, Tom Rinaldi, Lisa Leslie, Michael Vick, Jeremy Schapp, and Stephen Ross are just a few of the names who have joined us on stage to provide unique insight. We recently introduced the Sports PR Summit Collective. It's a way for everyone to stay in touch 24-7, 365. The Collective is the next evolution for our community of PR practitioners, media, and athletes. You'll find a counterpart day and night to ask and answer questions, share your inspiration, connect with colleagues, and celebrate victories. The technology that powers the Sports PR Summit Collective allows us to bring more valuable resources to our members and the industry. These include a members-only job board, a mentorship program, industry awards, courses in skill building, networking opportunities, and mastermind groups. You'll also still have the opportunity to attend our annual Sports PR Summit event in New York City, in person or virtually. And for the first time, we're also allowing access to students and entry-level communications executives. If you're a PR practitioner or a member of the media 
or an athlete, this is the community for you. Visit sportsprsummit.com for more information and to join the Sports PR Summit Collective. Now, here's Brian's interview with Mark Lazary from June 2021. Mark, welcome to Sports Business Radio. Uh, how are you today? Yeah, I've been better, uh, but I'm doing well, so thank you. Well, the Milwaukee Bucks are in the Eastern Conference Finals. I know it wasn't the game one that you may have been hoping for, but that's why it's a seven-game series. And, uh, boy, what a season it's been for the NBA and for the Milwaukee Bucks. You started later on December 22nd after playing in the bubble last year. What do you think about this new calendar that the NBA is on? And do you think it's something we may see continue in the future with a start closer to Christmas and a finish in mid to late July? No, I think, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, Very kind of you. Um, I I think we're going to get back to our regular season. I think we'll start um, back to where we did. Um, I know it hasn't been fully finalized, but I'm pretty sure we'll end up uh, instead of starting December 22nd, starting December 1st and, and just get back to what we had, um, what we've always done. What's it been like for you in the last year and a half? I mean, these are unprecedented times. We've never seen anything like this before playing in the bubble, starting this season with no fans. I mean, I've had Peter Fagan, your president, on this show. Everyone's really had to put on their thinking caps in the last year and a half because we've never seen anything like this. Yeah, look, it's been odd. I mean, obviously. um, I think really what everybody was focused on in the beginning was really safety uh, and the health of everyone. And I think the NBA has done a great job with that. But I think ultimately what we've all come to realize is – you know, we actually really like playing in front of fans and you need that interaction. You want people in your stadium. Um, I think we had to do the bubble and we wanted to finish uh, the season and we wanted to have the playoffs. But ultimately, I think what people have come to realize, even at the beginning of this season, when there were no fans, um, is it's not the same. And you want people in there and you've seen it. You've actually seen it throughout all these playoffs. Uh, the games have been great. And the reason for that is just the energy that's in the stadium and the energy that the players end up having and the energy that the players feed off. So I think it's actually an important part um, and it makes it more interesting. Um, you know, I think even watching the games, you want to see the fans there. You, you, you need to see the fans there. So I think it's all been a learning experience. And I think at times we've had, um, you know, the primary focus was really the health and safety of everyone. Um, and I think now that the vast majority of people have been vaccinated, um, you're seeing it that um, things are getting back to normal. That game seven overtime victory against Brooklyn in Brooklyn, maybe the best NBA game I've watched this year. How many uh, heart attacks did you have during that game? Because that was such a roller coaster ride with so many lead changes. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's probably the best game you've seen. Um, you know, I hate admitting this. Um, I couldn't watch the end. So when Durant, um, when Durant had the ball, I was sitting there with my son and obviously I see the first time when he puts it in overtime and I'm thinking he hit a three and we lost. My son's like, don't worry about it. Um, I think it's a, it's a two. Then when he's got the ball again with about six, seven seconds to go, 
Um, all I did was just stare straight ahead of me. And the reason for that is I, I figured, look, if he made the shot, everybody was going to scream and the stadium was going to erupt. And if he missed, you were going to hear a collective groan. Um, so when I heard the collective groan, that's when I jumped up. So it was, you know, you're, everybody's got their own superstitions, but, um, you know, for me, it was literally, um, you know, you're absolutely correct. You had a lot of highs and lows. Um, so, um, I'm just happy we ended up winning. You re-signed Giannis to a max deal this year. You extended Drew Holiday, who you acquired before the start of the season, to amazing players. Um, a lot of times in a small market, it's harder to re-sign those players. I know the Bucks have operated like a global brand for a long time now. Walk me through the recruitment of Giannis, because you knew from the time you got him, he was a special player. He's a two-time MVP. And you wanted to show him that you could keep him there in Milwaukee and that you're building something special. But it's not an easy task. You guys made it look easy, but it's really not that easy. No, look, I think at the end of the day, um, a lot of this is sort of the relationship that Giannis has with, I would say, sort of the city, um, the people in Milwaukee. Um, I would say with you know our general manager our coach, and then with us. And I think you, you need all of those, right? I mean, you really do. And then you need to have a player who values that. And uh, I think everybody who's met Giannis knows what he's like. Um, you know, he's a great kid. And I, I think really what Giannis wants is to win. And as long as he felt that we were going to do what it took to win, um, and we had that same commitment, and that the organization had that commitment, the GM had that commitment. And it's easy to say, it really is, because everybody says all they want to do is win. Um, I mean, there's nobody who goes, well, look, our goal isn't to win. Obviously, everybody's trying to do that. But it's having the players or the people that are working with you, um, that are your partners, um, they've got to feel the same thing. And if they do, then I think you, you're able to do great things. If people don't feel we're all on the same page, I think it then becomes uh, very difficult. You and Wes Edens are co-governors of the Milwaukee Bucks. Walk me through the dynamic between the two of you, because it's not just one of you. So I'm sure there's discussions about how things get done. And then what's your management style with your front office? And, and how often do you interact with your players like Giannis and Drew Holiday? Um, sure. So. Um, so technically there's only one governor. Uh, so there, the NBA only views one person as the person in charge. So Wes and I switch off every five years. Um, you know, we have a great relationship. It's, uh, I'd love to tell you, we always agree on everything. Um, I, I think we agree on the vast majority of things. And when we do disagree, we'll talk about it and we'll try to figure it out. Um, so I think it's been a great partnership. It's actually worked extremely well for us. Um, and I think part of that is just we've been friends for a long time. Our kids went to school together. Um, you know, our, our daughters have been our roommates or were roommates. So I, I think we're pretty close. And that's actually helped a lot um, so that, you know, our overriding goal is to try to, you know, make the organization one of the best organizations in the league. Um, 
So, and, you know, regarding our involvement, um, you know, I think we're pretty involved. I mean, in the sense of we'll talk to our GM, you know, when he needs, when he wants to do things, he'll check with us um, as to whether or not, you know, like regarding Drew, should we sign, should we make the trade for Drew? And really what it is, is GM will come up with all the ideas and they'll bounce them off of us and say, here's what I recommend. Um, and I would say the majority of the time we end up agreeing with them. And, you know, sometimes we'll say, well, look, we don't know if that makes sense. Take us through it. So it, it's more of a partnership. And I think it's worked out really well. What about on the business end? I know you've got a great president, Peter yeah. Fagan. He's been on. But you've grown so much there, primarily with the Pfizer Forum and the Deer District and everything that you've opened since 2018. I haven't been to Milwaukee post-opening. I've been there before. So I've seen all the pictures of how downtown Milwaukee has transformed, and it's just remarkable. Um, but that's been a big part of your organization, too, is growing the business side and, and adding the state-of-the-art arena. Look, I think Peter's done an absolute fabulous job on the business side. I mean, he really has. Um, you know, I would tell you he's Mr. Milwaukee. I mean, <laughs> you know, you see him everywhere. Um, he works nonstop. Um, he's, he's been great. He really has. And, and, and part of that is um, you actually need a partnership between the business side and the basketball side. And I think Peter and John, who's our GM, um, work exceptionally well together. Um, so I, I would tell you it's gone as well as it could um, on the business side. Um, you know, we were able to build a new arena. We were able to build the Deer District. We've been able to do a lot of different things. And a lot of that has been Peter. Walk me through the, the relationship. You just mentioned the importance of the relationship between basketball and business. I've seen a lot of organizations, whether they're MBA or others, where business and sport do not talk to each other. It's like they're in two separate organizations, but I happen to agree with you. I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers, and I think having that marriage between business and basketball is so important, but it seems like that's something that you've really uh, honed in on with the Bucks. Yeah, look, I think uh, our, our view is it's one organization, right? It's not two groups. And I think sometimes what you find in the NBA is you've got the basketball side and the business side and the basketball side says, you look, leave us alone. Um, we, we need to focus just solely on basketball and the business side um, is trying, you know, because you, you need to get the players involved in the community. People have to feel that they're part of the community. And so therefore, in our view, you need to have sort of the two working together. Um, it can't be sort of just two separate groups. I think a lot of that is really the people at the top, right? So Peter is somebody who's extremely inclusive. I would say John Horace, who's our GM, is the same. And the fact that, you know, they have a really close relationship makes a lot of what we want to do. They view themselves as partners. It makes a lot of what we want to do easier. Um, but I think to be successful, um, you've got to be one organization. You can't be two. And I think that's, that's the problem sometimes in the NBA. The Bucks have been extremely outspoken when it comes to social justice issues. And that's where I've really seen the marriage of basketball and business and one organization and one voice. And I think you guys have done a terrific job with it. What were the conversations and did those conversations reach your level 
when it was decided, you know what, we're going to take a stand on this. We're going to be outspoken. We're not going to just sit here silent. No, I think it's it's the whole organization. I mean, I think it's something we absolutely believe in. Um, and it's something where, you know, we've talked to our players. Um, and our view is it's something our players believe in as well. So it, it's been a great partnership. Um, I think it does. It reaches every part of the organization. It really does. Um, so I think really what our goal is, is that we want to be as one um, and that things that are important to us as a team and are important to us as an organization, um, we actually do want to make a stand and we want to tell people about it and we want to support our players. Um, so I think it's actually worked out exceptionally well um, for us as an organization. Mark the pandemic has set some new normals. I feel like we've reset yeah. in a lot of ways, both, you know, you're also the, the co-founder chairman and CEO of Avenue Capital Group. Um, so I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes there as well. Give me two or three like new normals coming out of this. I've had Mark Cuban on and he's such a visionary and talked about this is how we're going to be doing things differently going forward. I'm sure from where you sit, you're seeing some new normals, whether it's with the Bucks or with uh, Avenue Capital Group. Um, yeah, there is. Look, I think we've all changed. I think it's um, the fact that we're doing this on Zoom, right? Is just right. A, I mean, that that that's absolutely a new normal. That I didn't know about Zoom three years ago. Right. I didn't know you could do all this um, on the technology side. I think it's been easier for on the business side, um, it's made things a lot easier where, you know, if I have a meeting in LA um, and somebody can do Zoom, it's much simpler. So you're, you're saving a huge amount of time on travel. Um, so I think that's been good. Um, I think you're seeing that we can do more things remotely. Um, I think that's also been pretty positive. But then I also think what we've learned is that we actually do want the interaction among people. I've seen that in my office. Um, I've seen it with the box. And you've seen it just, you know, with when you think of the players, um, you know, the idea of just having games for TV. Um, I think people, you know, we went through that. And yes, great, we can do that. I don't think it's something that people want to do, right? I think you do want that interaction. So to me, the new normal has really been that I think we all have now higher comfort that we can do things remotely and we're not scared of that. Um, whereas, you know, I would tell you our firm, I mean, everybody's firm was really focused on sort of disaster recovery. What would happen if you couldn't be in the office for a week, right? I mean, I think that's for all of us. And all of a sudden now we found that it's not a week, but it's been a year. And I, I don't think I could have remotely imagined that our business would have thrived in an environment like that, right? And I, I think we, so now what you do is you sort of see, all right, well, that's work. Um, how do we take the good of that and make that even better? So um, I, I think I've learned quite a bit, but I've also learned that um, it isn't, I'm not a big believer that you've got to do everything remotely. I am a big believer that, you know, you need to sort of incorporate it. And, but at the end of the day, you still want the interaction among people. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw the CEO Morgan Stanley came out recently 
and said, hey, everyone back in the office by September 1st. And his reasoning was, if you can go to dinner in downtown San Francisco, you can come to the office. And you know, you may agree or disagree with that, but there are companies that are now starting to say, look, you know, you need to come back into the office. There are other companies that have gone remote forever and gotten rid of their office space. I guess it probably just depends on the industry and the management. Yeah, I think I think part of it, there, there's a lot of things you can do remotely. And I, I think we all see that and we all understand that. Um, but there is, and, and look, and, and it may be generational. Um, um, I think the older you are, the more you believe that the interaction among people is actually really beneficial and that you have ideas and you have, um, you know, working together within a group is beneficial. Um, and I think you've got a number of tech firms who think, look, you can do everything remotely. It's fine. Um, and I think it's what works for people. Um, you know, ultimately, really all that's going to happen is, you know, if you think of a firm like us, we're going to say, look, we want everybody, you know, we've got people who've started as of June 1st, everybody's back in our office um, if you're vaccinated. So, you know, our view is we'd like to have people in the office and people have a choice. I mean, you know, it's, it's a great country. You, if, if you come to the conclusion, well, look, I, I, I love working remotely. Um, I want to keep doing that. I, uh, you know, we have a number of employees who move and, you know, I think for them, I think they're, you know, uh, my view is I think ultimately they will end up just whether it's working for us or it's working for somebody else, but I think they're going to want to do things remotely um, because they're not going to want to move from where they are. So I, I think it, that's what's changed. I think people's view of the world or view of how they want to operate has changed dramatically. Um, and I, I think you're going to have businesses, um, you know, where regarding talent, that's going to change as well. I want to talk for a couple of minutes about, uh, we mentioned earlier, operating the bucks as a global brand. You know, it used to be way back in the day, you were just focused on Milwaukee, maybe the state of Wisconsin. Now people around the world are watching NBA games and they can watch them on their phones or they can watch them on a right. TV in any place in the world. How have you approached uh, a global brand with the Bucks, and, and, you know, kind of what's your strategy there? Um, well, one, I think it's a great question. Um, and really what you're saying is that you think the Bucks are America's team. So one, I want to thank you. <laughs> uh, hey, let's I, not stop there. They're the world's team. I'm I, talking I global brand hair. You're so right. not, not just America's team. Uh, so now we're the, the world's team, which uh, I think is great. Look, a lot of this is social media, right? And it's technology. Um, and I think the, the ease of watching a game um, you know, I think for me, I grew up, if you were watching the game, you know, there were three channels, <laughs> so right. three channels. Yeah. It wasn't really that complicated. Um, and you were just trying to fix your antenna to make sure the reception was coming in. So um, I, I think you've, you've got these teams today and we're one of them. And part of that is really because of Giannis. And I, I think as you have international superstars, uh, or you have international individuals, um, people end up watching them and so they're watching your team. 
And I think part of that is, um, you know, we've got a whole group that's dedicated to sort of putting out the message of the Milwaukee Bucks, who we are. And it's not just like, as you said, to Milwaukee or to Wisconsin or to the United States, it's global. And you see that, you know, we went to play in, when we first bought the team, um, we played in London. Um, you know, last year before the pandemic, one of our last games was in uh, Paris. Um, so I, I think the NBA is trying to do that. We're trying to do that. Um, but I think it's, you know, if you're a player, um, it's no longer, um, you know, I think if you're playing in Milwaukee, you were worried maybe 20 years ago, will people know who you are? Um, that's not the case anymore. I think wherever you're playing, everybody knows who you are. So I think it's great for the players. I think it's great for the teams. It's great for the league. I've got to imagine that Greece is probably your number one market outside of the United States. Are the ratings there pretty good? Yeah, no, they're phenomenal. Um, the only thing that would be a little bit better if it was a bigger country. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's really about it. But yeah, it's, um, I mean, that, I, I would tell you Giannis is a national hero there. When you're making big decisions, because I'm reading so much about this, there's, uh, I think, five coach openings in the NBA right now. And, you know, it's the offseason when free agents are signed and things like that. How much do you and Wes and John consult with your key players like Giannis on, hey, we're thinking about making this decision. What do you think? Or do you just tell them after the fact because they're a player? Not at all. First of all, Wes and I are not are are not going to talk to any of the players about sort of the coaches, um, just simply because I don't think it's what we should be doing. I think that's up to the GM, right? So ultimately, at the end of the day, I think on the basketball side, John's got the relationship with the players, and he's got the relationship with the coach. So I I think we try to leave that really to our general manager. Um, because he's dealing with the players day to day. Um, so I think ultimately it's, it's exactly a little bit of what I said earlier. Um, you want a partnership with everybody. Um, so you're, you know, John's got a phenomenal partnership with Bud um, and he's got a great relationships with all the players. So, you know, for us so far, it's worked out extremely well. I want to spend a few minutes talking about NBA league issues um, there's been a lot of talk about expansion. I had Robert Sarver on a couple of months ago with the Suns, and you know, there's always that dilemma: Do you want to spl- slice the pie, uh, you know, 31 or 32 ways, or do you want to keep it at 30? There's benefits to staying where you are. There's also benefits to adding some new markets and and you know, potential media markets. What are two or three of the, I guess, key issues that the owners are discussing right now at those board of governors meetings? I'm not asking to, you know, I don't want to get you fined or anything like that, but what are some things that you guys are talking about as you look at this league right now and you look at the next five to 10 years, what's that conversation like? Look, I think, I think really what it is, it's not, it's not that complicated. The question is, I think when you add a team, or you had two teams, um, the question is, what happens to the level of play, right? And, and that's really it. I, I think what you want is you, you want your players and you want the league to stand for excellence. And I think that's the goal. 
right? And then the question becomes, all right, um, look, if we had 60 teams, what would that do? You know, I mean, like I always take extremes. I really do. Hmm. And, and what I mean by that is if you sort of think about it and go, okay, well, if we had 60 teams, what would happen? I think people would say, well, I don't know if that would be as interesting because you'd have a lot of teams that just wouldn't be that good. Okay, great. You know, is 30 the right number? Um, you know, is it 32? Is it 31? Is it 36? Is it 24? Um, so I think part of this is just always trying to figure out um, what's the best thing for the league um, and for the NBA and for the players. Um, because really what we have is we have something that people want to watch. And uh, ultimately, you know, if you have more teams, are people still going to be more interested? Or will that level of interest wane because they don't think the, you know, the play is as good? And I, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's what everybody keeps on trying to figure out. So that's why you always hear about expansion. Um, it's been there you know, that's always the question for the NBA is, um, do we keep growing? And is there enough interest in what we're doing if we keep growing? I know Adam Silver pretty well. I've sat with him on stage at, at my event in New York. Um, I think he's done a terrific job. Sports yeah. Business Journal just named him uh, Executive of the Year for this year, which is a great honor for him. How often do you interact with him? Is it just at Board of Governors meetings? Uh, what's that relationship like? Um, I think it's a great relationship. I mean, it's a little bit of what you said. Adam's a great guy. Um, I think Adam is absolutely reachable. If, if there's something that I want to talk to Adam about, it's easy to do and vice versa. Um, so, you know, I'll, yes, you'll see Adam in the Board of Governors, but you also... Um, You'll see Adam at a number of events that we all go to, and Adam will come to a bunch of our games. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think at least for me, I think we have a great relationship. I, I love talking to him. Um, I think he's an exceptionally smart guy. So if there's things we're looking at or different ideas that I may have, I'll bounce it off of Adam. Um, you know, I wish he would take every idea I had as being brilliant, but somehow, uh, doesn't seem that way and i don't understand why but what's well, an idea that you've pitched to adam that he's like yeah i'm not so sure about that but i think you know the buck should have 80 82 home games i don't know why we need to try <laughs> okay that's a little bit far-fetched come on are, no are you i know i'm just kidding it's just no i think parts of it is just different things of what we can do within the league and the nba um so i i, I think all of us have sort of different ideas of what we can do to make things better. Um, we'll all talk to Adam about it. Um, and then we'll bring it up, uh, to the rest of the, you know, to the league and to the board of governors. One of the ideas that it seems like Adam has had is the idea of a mid season tournament. Yeah. What do you think about that idea? Um, I think it's interesting. I really do. I think part of it is how do you do it? Uh, look, I think the idea of the plan, that's been a great, that's been yeah. great for the league. I think, um, you know, the only people who complain about it are the people who um, don't want to be in the play-in <laughs> if they're the seventh and eighth seed. And the, But I think it's been phenomenal for the league. I think it's something hopefully that'll stay. Um, but I think sort of mid-season, same thing. 
you know, I, the great thing about Adam is he's always trying to figure out how to change, you know, how to sort of innovate. And I think we need to do that um, because we're not static and things are changing around us. Uh, a few more questions and I'm going to bring Mike Finley back in for a couple minutes. Um, okay. I need the scouting report on Mark Lazary. You played in the 2019 celebrity all-star game at NBA yep. all-star weekend. What's the scouting report on you? Oh, don't let me shoot. I mean, deadly, <laughs> deadly from the outside. Uh, really? So you're, yeah. are, are, you're like, you could go out there with Drew Holiday and uh, drain some threes. Oh yeah, it's not even close. Um, you know, lightning quick. Um, as you know, as long as it's in slow mo, um, <laughs> I sort of seem really fast. Um, now, look, I think for all of us, I mean, I, I used to play in college. It was fun. Um, you know, it was Division three, so there, there's a big difference between Division three, two, and one. Uh, you know, as my kids constantly remind me when I tell them, "Yeah, Dad, you keep saying you play in college." It, a little school. It wasn't like a big school. Uh, but um, look, I think it's a blast. I think um, for all of us, um, you know, if you love the game and you you just, it's something that stayed with you for your whole life. So I'd say deadly, deadly shooter from the outside. How often do you go to the practice facility and get shots up with the guys? Um, as often as I can. It's just not that often. I'd love to do it. Um, you know, I think ultimately I, I'll do it. Um, I'll do it two or three times a year. Um, they're always surprised that I can shoot, um, but I'll I'll get into some of the shooting drills. Um, but it's yeah, it's just a blast. Have you ever uh, taken any money off anyone at horse or anything like that? Um, no. <laughs> I, I, you know, the only problem is, you know, if you sort of think about it, they are NBA players. Uh, I'm not. So the likelihood of me taking money off of them is pretty slim to none. Um, but, you know, I, I once was kidding around with a player um, who will remain nameless and we we're kidding. And I said, um, how about if we play one-on-one? I get 15 tries to score one basket. And if I score one basket, I win. And you, you know, you don't need to shoot because we know you'll score. So what do you think? And, you know, it was for like a hundred dollars. And he goes, why don't you just give me the 100 because you won't be able to score one basket. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 I'm really good. He goes, you're not that good. <laughs> you're not that good. You're slow. Um, I'll take advantage of you. Don't, don't, I mean, just give me the 100. Why waste the time? So, you know, you, you quickly realize um, how good everybody is. And um, so I never did the bet because he sort of psyched me out. But um, I, I thought I'd be able to score one basket, but no, it didn't work. One more question uh, sure. before we bring Mike in. Uh, I know Wes Eden's your your business partner, co-owner, just launched a tequila brand with yeah. the likes of Michael Jordan and Jeannie Buss yeah. and a few other uh, NBA owners. Did you go to that launch party? Because I heard it was a, a pretty fun launch party. Yeah, I did. It was fun. Um, it's a great tequila. Um, you know, I think Wes and the group did a fabulous job on it. Um, yeah, the good news about having a partner who's done that is he sends you a lot of free tequila. So it's, been, <laughs> it's actually been great. That's gotta be fun. Like I love to see stuff like that, where a few of the different owners of different teams yeah. get together and do something like that. Cause it tells me that there's, 
a good camaraderie between the one of 30. I mean, you sit in a very special club. There's not many people 30 in the world who, you know, own an NBA franchise. So I think that's a fun thing when it you is. kind of get together and go, Hey, let's do something fun like that. No, I think, I think they did a great job. I mean, they're, they're all actually really close friends. Um, so I think it's, it was a lot of fun for them and for Wes and Michael and Jeannie and Wick is the other partner. Um, so I think it's been great. Yeah. He loves it. Excellent. All right. We're going to bring Mike Finley from Boingo back into the conversation, but Mark, I'm going to stay with you. Um, Pfizer forum opened its doors in 2018, as we discussed, it's a state of the art venue. Um, what has made Pfizer forum so successful so far? I mean, I talked to Peter about this a little bit, but what are two or three things that if you come to Pfizer Forum in the Deer District, this is what's going to leave the imprint? Um, I think the ease of accessibility. Um, I think what we've done is we incorporated in there um, a lot of Wisconsin. Um, I think people really, we made it light, we made it airy, we made it open. Um, you know, the, the, the old stadium was about if you sort of think about it, 30 years old, it was one of the oldest stadiums that we had. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't that hard to improve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're sort of doing something from 30 years ago. Um, but I, I think it's everything. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, it, if you sort of look at sort of the practice facility, the stadium itself, um, how everything is new, you know, regarding the ease for the players, um, getting into the stadium. Um, like a, if you remember the old stadium, the Bradley Center, um, it was just dark. I mean, that's the, there, there's nothing you can do about it. And I think what the new Pfizer Forum is, it's very warm. It's very opening. You've got the, the Deer District, which is that um, right outside before you come in. I mean, now we've got literally, I think, like 5,000 fans who will stand outside and watch games. Um, you could never do that. You've got... I think for, um, you know, for our premium ticket holders, we've made things easier and better for them. Um, we've made the experience more interesting. Um, look, really, what are we competing against? We're competing against people staying home and wa watching it on HDTV, right? So if you think about that, um, sometimes it's easier just stay home, right? And what we're trying to do is say, no, you want to come out, um, here's why. And I think Peter and the rest of that, and the rest of his team have done a fabulous job. I'm going to go to Mike Finley now. Mike, uh, one of the reasons people stay home is sometimes there's not a great wireless connection when you go to the venue and everyone wants to share pictures and video and, and things like that. I know Boingo's done such a great job enhancing uh, those connections for fans at games. What technology do venues need to have now to really stay stay in the art and say i gotta buy the ticket instead of staying home and watching it on hdtv well first of all uh this has been a great discussion mark thanks for joining and uh congratulations on all the great success it's really fun to watch your team play and i was noticing all the fans outside last night as well watching the game but it's really all about all of the technology and connectivity coming together uh, brian and that we believe strongly in, in utilization of converged and neutral technology. So you have all the, the wireless side through the cellular uh, carriers, the Wi-Fi technology, which has become greatly enhanced with Wi-Fi 6, soon to be Wi-Fi 6E, and a lot of spectrum 
that the government's been putting out. When you look at the, the great devices that are there, the phones, the iPads, uh, what people are bringing, they have all this capability. So the venue needs to enable all of that as well. So what we do is bring all of that together. Uh, at the end of the day, when you're at the stadium or at the arena, you're not really caring what technology you're on. You just want to make sure it's on. And, um, and so, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, it was about what you described. You know, I want, I have a picture. I want to get it sent out there. I want to show somebody where my seats are and things. And now it's a lot about, you know, health and safety. We've done contactless ticketing already. The leagues have been doing that. Uh, but now as fans are coming back into the, the stadiums, they want to be uh, safe, secure. So there's a lot of cashless payments. You know, we've done that at some of our arenas already um, uh, around the, the country. There's health protocols. And then there's simple, you know, things that sound simple but are, are hard to do, like just cleaning. Uh, and the, the venues all want to have, uh, you know, robotics and things like that. They takes a lot of bandwidth. So we're bringing all of that technology together and bringing it into the stadiums. And it's going to be a phenomenal fan experience because of that, because now you can do virtual reality, augmented reality, and, uh, you know, some gambling as, you know, real time as that becomes more legal in different places. Mark, back to you. Uh, CEOs worldwide say the pandemic has really accelerated that digital transformation. Mike just mentioned some of the ways cashless, touchless, cleaning facilities. From where you sit with both of your businesses, what are some of the digital transformations that you're paying attention to? I know we talked about we're all on Zoom more and things like that, but what else are you seeing with digital transformation? I think Mike hit it on the head. I mean, a lot of it is really sort of how you want to make that experience easier and use the technology to do that. So having cashless transactions and um, being able to send tickets um, to the fans and but a lot of it and, and Mike's right I mean it, it's really having the ability where people it's funny people will be sitting next to each other and, and they're still texting each other I mean I, which I've never understood <laughs> Neither so I, <laughs> no but if, if they can't text the guy sitting next to them they're really upset so you you need to have Mike's technology there because um, you know, normally, you know, when I go to a game, I'll turn around and go, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> the, you know, I'll see my kids going, eh, how you doing? You know, that's really what it is. Um, but I think a lot of that is you, you want to be able, um, that when you're in that stadium that you can communicate. And if you're not able to communicate easily, uh, especially for the younger generation, um, you're going to have a harder time. So I think Mike's absolutely right um, that you need to be able to have that technology. Um, and I think for us, that's really one of our biggest focuses is making sure that once people come in, um, not only can they send pictures of themselves, they can send video of um, who, you know, of a player doing a specific thing or somebody always, you know, the, the videos I see, somebody's always behind, you know, the, the, you've got the court behind you and you've got somebody going, you know, some crazy picture. Um, if you can't send that, I think you've taken away a lot of that experience. So I think all the cashless transactions, absolutely. Um, it's just made things easier. Um, but really, you need to have the technology that Mike's talking about in there. You know, it's amazing to me, speaking of technology, you could argue 
the Bucs season was extended because of technology. Kevin Durant's three versus a two, if you don't have the replay angles and all of the zoom-ins and all of the stuff that you could really look at that and get it right, which they did, you know, if, if this is 1971 and he's shooting that shot, you don't have the ability to go back and go, okay, his foot was on the line. It was a two, not a three. It's just amazing to me when you look at all the different ways that we can analyze things yeah. or share videos now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, in 71, all it would have been is, you know, was his foot on the line and hopefully the ref saw it that way. And if he didn't, that's it. I mean, there was, you, you couldn't appeal a decision. Right. Right. I mean, it wasn't, if he had said his foot was behind the line, even if I said, look, I saw it, trust me, <laughs> you know, I saw it. It was, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. Goodbye. So uh, look, technology is great. I mean, it is, it's, I think it's helped a lot of things. Um, so it, you know, the good and the bad, the, the great thing about technology is we think it makes everything faster. Um, sometimes it makes things a little slower because it's exactly what you said. You had to go review that and look at it from like seven different angles. Um, and But at the end of the day, I think what people really want is to be right. And, um, you know, because you don't want a game to be decided by a mistake. You really don't. And um, so I think technology has helped um, fix a lot of that. I'm, I'm thinking of putting in uh, the Hawkeye system because I play tennis. Um, and every time I play, everybody keeps calling my balls out. So I'm pretty sure they're in. So I'm going to put in that Hawkeye system um, and make sure I set it up. So if the ball is a foot out, they, you know, the Hawkeye still calls it in. So, you know, I'm going to make sure I control the technology. Excellent. I love that. Mike, one more question for you. Uh, again, Boingo is a pioneer in wireless technology at big venues. Is there anything new that you're working on? You just mentioned, what was it, 6G? I can't even keep up with all the Gs. Every time I talk to you, there's a 3G, a 4G, a 5G, a 6G. It seems like this is all progressing so quickly. Well, that's the beauty of what we do. It's continuing to evolve. We're not at 6G yet, but, uh, uh, but we're at 5G, and it's really enabling a lot of great capabilities. We actually... Announced today, uh, the Boingo private network uh, uh, enterprise that we're entering into. And really what that's going to enable is, uh, uh, you know, opportunities um, uh, for the enterprise. So in the, in the sports world, in the arenas, all these great connectivity I talked about, licensed, unlicensed, CBRS, hybrid, Wi-Fi, cellular, those types of things, bringing that all together uh, into a private type of network for these venues is going to enable lots of uh, other benefits for them and their users. I mentioned robotics and cleaning before of, of, of this type of stuff. It takes a lot of bandwidth, uh, makes it easier, contactless, stuff like that. But also security cameras, health and safety protocols, um, you know, a lot of back office operations. Historically, being able to get coverage in some of the bowels of these stadiums and, and that, there's still a lot of activity and a lot of need for that. Uh, and we're working with the clubs and the leagues and the teams you know, to, to not only enable a great experience for the fans uh, to be able to do what they want to do, as we've just discussed, but also to enable the, the owners and the arenas uh, to, to have a, a bunch of opportunities for their own private type of needs with services and touchless and contactless health protocols, safety, cleaning, all, all those types of things. So we're very excited about that. Well, Mark and Mike, I really appreciate you both joining me for the Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo. Mark, best of luck to you and the Bucks as you continue your journey. I'm 
hoping that you're going to get that, that long awaited championship. What has it been? It's 1971, right? Yeah. Was the last one. So I think you guys are, we're due. Well set we're up. due. That's you're, due. we're due. Yep, you're due. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I'm interested to see how the Hawkeye works out at your house and hopefully you go undefeated <laughs> going forward in, in tennis matches. So it'll make you, you undefeated. <laughs> and, and Mike, thank you. And Boingo so much for, uh, supporting the sports business radio roadshow. And thanks to Malka sports for producing this event here today. Thank you both. Thank you. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. We've collaborated with our friends at Parish Project to create high-quality sports business radio clothing, including hoodies, long-sleeve T-shirts, and short-sleeve T-shirts. Each item comes in five different colors and a variety of sizes. These items are super comfortable, and you can wear them on Zoom calls, while working out, or when you're lounging around the house. Sports Business Radio has loyal listeners around the world. We'd love for you to post a picture rocking your Sports Business Radio gear. Tag us on Instagram or Twitter if you post. Get your official Sports Business Radio gear by going online to parishproject.com. That's parishproject.com. P-A-R-I-S-H project.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.